And now, here they are, the Beatles! Hi, I'm Justin Shears, and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser-known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. From London, this is Pop Profile. Presenting Brian Matthew talking to a top personality from the world of popular music. The subject of this edition of Pop Profile is Beatle Paul McCartney. When you're not being a Beatle, what sort of things interest you most? I like lots of things, yeah. Um, I like music. Yeah. Just anyway. I like writing music. I mean, that's sort of almost even apart from the Beatles. Mind you, we record everything that we write, so... But uh, I, I just liked doing things like that, music. Mm. Oh, I don't know, you know, lots of things I want to do. But I haven't got round to them yet. Mm. But I will do, you know. You've attracted a fair amount of uh, publicity of late by attending unusual sort of concerts and plays and things, haven't you? Yeah, it, well, it's funny that, you know, because I don't... It's a drag that it does attract that funny kind of publicity because, you know, the only reason I'm going is not the way people seem to think of it in the newspapers and things. I mean, the... In one of the newspapers, they wrote up, I went to see this fellow who was just a composer, and I'd heard some of his music. And a bit of it was electronic, you know, and it was sort of quite interesting. It sounded all new and everything. Mm. You know? And I went along, and then the papers sort of wrote it up. Uh, no wonder he was there, you know. It's, it was about electronic music, like uh, sort of, you know. Yeah. It was a drag, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because you, that's the trouble, you get put into a pigeonhole. You know, all kinds of music, for instance. There are millions of kinds of music I haven't listened to yet, you know. Mm. But I've heard few kinds... Only sort of extracts of them, really. But I suddenly realised I like them, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always thought I didn't. And it's funny, you know, just suddenly realise that, yes, you think, that's quite good, you know. Yeah. But I wonder why I always turned that off when it came on the radio. Mm-hmm. You know, Indian music. Yeah. For instance, I mean, whenever you get on an Indian channel, you know, and you're fiddling through the radio, I always used to just turn it off. Mm-hmm. And George got this big sort of Indian kick. Mm-hmm. And he, he's dead keen on it, you know. And he's we've been around to his house a couple of times, and he plays you and uh, so boring. <laughs> no, no, it's it's good, you know. Yeah. And you sort of hear millions of things in it that I never realised were in it. You know, classical music, yeah. some classical music. There can be no doubt that with the recording of Revolver, the Beatles were making their greatest leaps forward to date in terms of musical influences, experimentation and recording techniques. Gone with the days of recording multiple songs in one session with the basic lineup of drums, bass and guitars and minimal overdubs. With several million selling albums to their name, the Beatles were finally being allowed to take their time in honing their craft, with the grateful EMI allowing them the run of the mill at Abbey Road Studios. Of course, with million selling albums comes large profits, and in the mid-1960s, large tax bills. Fed up with not seeing most of what he earned, George put pen to paper for the band's first real attempt at social commentary. Well, that was the point where you discover you're not actually, you know, you're paying more money to the tax man than you are, you know, you get so happy that you finally started earning money. 
And then you find out that, I mean, in those days, we paid 19 shillings and sixpence out of every pound. You know, that's when there was 20 shillings in the pound. And that was with super tax and surtax and tax tax and stuff. And, you know, it was ridiculous, uh, you know, a heavy penalty to pay for, for making money. One, two, three, four, <laughs> one, two. Let me tell you how it will be There's one for you, 19 for me Cause I'm the tax man Yeah, I'm the tax man Should 5% appear too small Thankful I don't take it all Cause I'm the tax man Yeah, I'm the tax man If you drive a car, car I'll tax the street If you try to sit, I'll tax your seat If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat If you take a walk, I'll tax your Take 11 of Taxman, the song which would open the new LP. Basic tracks were laid down on the 21st of April, with Paul providing the blistering guitar solo with Indian overtones. The early backing vocals heard here, asking if anyone had a bit of money, would eventually be replaced with warnings to Prime Minister Harold Wilson and opposition leader Ted Heath. With the current full ending not felt to be fitting for the ending of the track, it was later decided to edit in Paul's solo again to fade the song out. Having completed the opening track, the Beatles returned to the song which would conclude the album. Tomorrow Never Knows, still with the working title of Mark One, had been the first track recorded for the Revolver Sessions back in early April, and would now be improved upon to become a stunning soundscape, which would leave fans gasping once the needle had lifted on side two. Although it was very much John's song, it was Paul's experiments with home recording which would provide the surreal backdrop for the track. Yes. 
And also, you know, Paul and, you know, I mean, there was different things going on, different influences at the time, one of them being avant-garde, you know, Stockhaus and... And so, I mean, it was very much experimental um, thing and all that was a number of experimental things that all came together on the one song. I see you, Jack. Really is a wizard, too, really. No, honestly. It's a biffo, do this. The sounds of a happy party um, recorded live at the um, Apollo basement in Montague Square. Can we have some echo on this, please? Well, I've only just come down for the really exhibition, nice. but... Well, I mean, we don't get I'm things, amazed you know, at what I well, see. No, no, quite. I mean, I didn't uh, know right. the modern world. No, the I wouldn't have believed it myself either. Forward no, such a I wouldn't pace. have done. I mean, they seem to be running. Let's go. Yes, um, don't panic and uh, Well, I'm afraid it's a crinkle in the tape. I'm afraid it's a crinkle in the tape for the high face super the surfers. experimenting on his Brunel recorder by taking off the erase head on his recorder he found that he could make a loop of tape and play just one note which would go round and round and re-record itself and saturate the tape and he would bring into me these different sounds and they were weird I mean I think they were at seven and a half inches so we were trying at 15 or 30 and backwards as well. And the other guys heard about this, and they started doing the same thing. So they were bringing me in all sorts. I had about 120 different tapes they gave me, and they said they could use them in Tomorrow Never Knows. I just made a lot of little loops that I liked, you know, and brought them all in, literally little pieces of loop tape, little plastic bag. Let's have a listen to the tape loops chosen for the final track. We'll hear each tape loop played forwards at normal speed, then backwards at normal speed, and then played at the much faster speed as they appeared in the final mix. First up, Paul McCartney laughing. Next, a B-flat major chord from a Jan Sibelius recording. Third, various Mellotron sounds. In fourth place, a sitar piece. 
lastly, another sitar piece. With all of the tape loops ready to go, the only problem now was how to go about including them in the mix. George Martin explains. And then I thought, well, the best way of doing this is really not to just sit back and put them in with a particular section and then another bit and edit them in. I think it would be better if we had a kind of random performance. So by this time, I was able to throw my weight around in Abbey Road and... I managed to get, I think it was about eight different recorders, which had to be in different parts of the building. They couldn't all go in our control room. With men taking these loops, putting them on their tape machine, and having them playing all the time, and holding against the head by means of a pencil. These poor guys had to stand there all day doing it. And we fed the sounds down to our control room and brought them up through the board. So that, in fact, we had an organ. Our console was an organ, with the faders being like keys. Played our games with these eight selection of eight tapes. Everybody joined in. Jeff Emmerich had the job of mixing it all, and I was doing panning and, and that kind of thing. And halfway through, I said, OK, that'll do fine. Let's put another eight tapes on, and we do the same thing again for the second half. And we got them all on about eight or so machines with everyone holding a loop and a pencil or a bit of a glass and stuff and got them running around on the machines and then fed them all into the desk and made a little mix. All those seagull noises and stuff, it's all sped up tapes and loops. So that was another little ingredient in that. Added to this were double-tracked vocals by John, again channeled through the studio's rotating Leslie speaker. Having played with backwards vocals on Rain, it was decided that a backwards lead guitar break, again played by Paul, would be added. Here's how it sounded when originally played forwards by Paul. when heard in reverse in the final mix. These final touches completed a mini masterpiece and the Beatles' first truly psychedelic track.
We are gathered here today. That's good. That's that piano down there. What are you? I don't know. It sounds like you. It could be me. Uh, it sounds like you. Sooty. Ever so funny. Well, there you go. Hi. Well, that's how we did it, really. The 26th of April saw the remake of a song first recorded nearly a week prior. Quite, quite brisk. Uh, moderato, Foxtrot. Is it? Oh, of course, I couldn't see. One, two, three, four. Oh, no, stop, stop, stop. One, two, three, four. isolation mix of Angel Bird Can Sing, featuring dual guitar solos by John and George. This version of the song was started, completed and mixed in a single session, and would be a standout track on the B-side of Revolver. A late night early morning session on the following evening of the 27th of April saw recording begin on another of John's contributions to the album, an aptly titled number considering the lateness of the hour. rehearsal take of I'm Only Sleeping. After some deliberation about how to arrange the song, the Beatles laid down five takes for further consideration. I'm only sleeping, take one. <laughs> 
decided a remake was in order, and Take 11 provided the bed for the finished recording. Recorded at a slightly faster than normal tape speed, with standard guitars, bass and drums in place, it was felt that something unusual was needed to supplement the dreamy feel of the song when played back at normal speed. Again, Serendipity would provide the inspiration. John got a spool of tape of the rough mix of the backing track to, uh, I think it was I'm Only Sleeping. And, you know, by the time he got home, uh, he didn't realise because the tape was tails out. And uh, they just stuck it on a reel and he put it on his tape machine and threaded the tail in forward and got it backwards. That's when he came in the next day and said, oh, yeah, backwards. And then we made him turn the tape over and play it backwards. And we all played, I think John and I, or Paul and I, played guitars just like random notes on the guitars and then we turned the tape back over to see what we had and that was like the first time we had a backwards solo. 
easier to do experiments because we'd had a few hits. You know, that was the key. <laughs> no, the, the key was that we'd had success. Yeah. And then it was, oh, great, come in, lads. Yeah. Nice to see you back again. And as we got more and more success, we were more and more able to you know, try some far-out ideas. And, um, It'd also give us more time. And also then you'd have success with something that might have seemed like a far-out idea, and that had, you know, people would say, wow, this is great, and so we'd come back again, and George would be, you know, really quite keen to try, well, what other ideas have you got, you know? So it just became, you know, like a free house for, you know, whatever idea you wanted, we'd try it. mix of I'm Only Sleeping, complete with backwards guitar solos added on the 29th of April, one played by George, and again, one played by Paul, who was now adding much more than bass guitar to the Beatles' recordings.
In between sessions for I'm Only Sleeping, work began on a new Paul McCartney composition, whose origins are the stuff of legend. Or are they? When I was really little, I lived on what we call a housing estate. There were a lot of old ladies, and I enjoyed sitting around with these older ladies because they, they had these great stories, in, in this case, about World War II, you know. And one in particular who I used to kind of just visit and I'd kind of go shopping for her, you know, she couldn't get out. So anyway, so I remember her. So I had that figure in my mind of a sort of lonely old lady. And over the years, I'd met a couple of others. And I don't know, maybe the loneliness made me sort of empathise with them. But I, I, I thought it was a great character. So I, I started this song about lonely old lady who picks up the rice in the church, who never really uh, gets the dreams in her life. And uh, then I added in the, the priest, the vicar, Father Mackenzie. And so there was just the two characters, you know. So it was nice, it was like writing a, a short story. And, but it was based basically on these old ladies that I had known as, as a kid. Father Mackenzie in the song, I originally had Father McCartney, but when I came to finish it up with John, I brought it to John and we were playing it around. And I said, uh, I, don't want to, I don't want to call this Father McCartney because it's like my dad. It just is a bit confusing. And he said, no, it's fine. So I said, no, I don't like it. So I said, okay, let's change it. So we got the phone book. And we just went right down to sort of McCartney, 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 and looked for something, Mc something. And the next one was like Mackenzie. I said, that's better. So he became Father Mackenzie. Sometimes I do that, you know, just to block it out. So you, so you don't spend forever trying to figure out the exact lyric. You just go, ba da 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 so it could be Barbara Hawkins, Miss Daisy. And you, you just leave it for like that, and then you go, I don't really like that. So I was looking around for another name. There's a kind of strange story about that, because I, I, I like the name Eleanor. We've been working with an actress called Eleanor Braun in uh, the Beatles film Help. So I like the name Eleanor. But I was looking for this Eleanor Papa to make the, the rhythm. So I was looking for this nice surname, and uh, I happened to be in Bristol, and the, I saw a shop that said Rigby. So I thought, oh great, Eleanor Rigby. So now I had the, the name of my main character. But then years later, somebody else is researching this, and they said, you know in that village where, you used to, where John used to live, um, there's a graveyard uh, in the church, and there is a gravestone there to an Eleanor Rigby. So I said, did I subconsciously know that name? Why would I go around searching for it? I don't know. I think it's maybe a coincidence, but there is a gravestone in Liverpool in, in a place called Walton where me and John met that does say Eleanor Rigby. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all a segment from a rare home demo recording of Eleanor Rigby. The recording of the song would be yet another Beatles first. Even though a string quartet had featured on Paul's Yesterday two albums ago, Eleanor Rigby would feature no other instruments at all. Where are you, Paul? Are you there? 
Do you want him to use? Yes. Do you want him to use the chords without vibrato at all? Do you want to hear it? Take 14 of Eleanor Rigby. Paul's vocals would be added the following day, as would John and George's minimal backing harmonies. This song would become a fan favourite, as well as Paul's most cherished pieces, one of his own personal favourites from his Beatles back catalogue. up the rice in the church where a wedding has been lives in a dream waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door who is it for all the lonely people where do they all come from all the lonely people where do they all belong Father Mackenzie, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes near, look at him working, donning his socks in the night when there's nobody there. What does he care, all the lonely people? Where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Rigby, 
Died in the church and was buried along with her name Nobody came, Father Mackenzie Wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave No one was saved, all the lonely people Where do they all come from? All the lonely people Where do they all belong? Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, we'll once again pull up a chair in Studio 2 as the Beatles complete their most complex and diverse album to date. Until next time...